coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. I just tried to do whatever I could to help the team win. And even if it was unpopular at the time, sometimes you got to be a little unpopular if you're going to do something new. I put my neck out there. My entire career, I've always been swimming upstream, doing things even earlier. I was young. I was spending a lot of time in my office between training sessions, just studying and reading and trying new things. And people I worked with didn't like that. Like, you're not a part of the team. You don't hang out with us in the office and BS and you don't go do staff workouts. I'm like, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to train athletes and get better. And look, I'm not saying I'm this great person or great coach or anything, but the best are the best for a reason. You got to put in the work. Hi, this is Dr. Eric Corum. You can follow me on LinkedIn at Eric Corum and at aim7.com. And this is my episode with Sleep, Eat, Perform, and Repeat. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Dr. Eric Corum, High Performance Thought Leader and Founder of AIM7. Eric is the host of the Blueprint Podcast, a columnist for Inc., former Director of Sports Science for the Houston Texans, Presidential Leadership Scholar, and an avid learner. Eric has huge experience in the weight room with sports science, data, and cutting-edge monitoring technology, pushing the boundaries of performance. Today, we distill the balance between technical and soft skills in his work in college and pro football, those human skills, and discuss his transition from playing in Texas A&M to launching his own platform, AIM7, an app that turns wearable data into a personalized health and fitness plan. Eric shared the pillars around AIM7, in particular psychological flexibility, how to overcome negative thoughts by developing this attribute, why adaptability is a critical foundational block. Eric explained how he keeps learning and growing despite now being a CEO running a large business, how he has diversified his skill set over the years, why curiosity is essential, and his overarching mission statement. Here's a man that owns his mistakes, learns, and grows from them. We can all take something from this lesson. Eric Korn, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for giving us your time. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. I got my morning coffee and the weather's pleasant here in Texas, so I'm good to go. What coffee do you go for and why? I like the lighter brews because they have more caffeine. <laughs> uh, and then I use some monk fruit, but I usually drink my coffee 30 minutes, usually like an hour after waking, because I don't want to disrupt cortisol and adenosine. So let my body kind of do its natural thing and then drink my coffee. Yeah. I'm gone 90 minutes now. Huberman influenced recently 90 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. I'm still you know, 10 minutes. I'll tell you what's amazing. I like Andrew Huberman. But I think everybody thinks he invented neuroscience. <laughs> it's like neuroscience did not exist before Andrew Huberman. And then really the funny thing is, is like he talks a lot about exercise, 
And, but it's always a neurological perspective. Like, and that's cool. That's his niche. But, um, I have no, I really, and I really appreciate the fact that he tries to bring some serious scientific rigor to what he does. It's just, those episodes are like three days long. Yeah. Yeah. Two speed, at least you yeah. can get through half. To all yeah. you listening, this is going to be four days long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sports science and all that jazz. But he's getting a bit of flack lately on Twitter that he's choosing and he's been very selective about the research he's using to create practical tools that there's not a lot of rigor behind them, which is interesting. I haven't, I think it was generally around memory and it was also about his episode on memory, his episode on heat and cold exposure. Yeah. I mean, I don't, he talks about, I mean, look, cold exposure, I think is good. I think if it depends on the the reason you're using it, exactly. I'm, I'm no longer an athlete and I'm craving a cold tub. Uh, I take cold showers just because I have a business and I work from home and it helps me with alertness. So I'll take a, I'll go on a walk in the morning and take a cold shower, but it's not quite cold enough. But if I was a training athlete, I wouldn't want to be doing cold tubs all the time. I think even, uh, Andy Galpin mentioned, you know, like, Hey, you may want to temper that a little bit because it can inhibit some of the, um, pathways for adaptation. You know, we don't want to push back too much on in the inflammatory process exactly which we've seen being physios the inflammatory process is targeted now we should stop using ice to let the inflammatory process and stop using anti-inflammatories in order to let healing happen and it's sort of gone completely the other way where it was one side of the coin where it was limit inflammation as much as you can in the short acute bout after an injury but now it's saying just rest up optimally load but do not take anti-inflammatories where do you guys sit on the spectrum? I wouldn't promote too much the use of anti-inflammatories above other pieces like optimal loading and movement rest, just a little bit of ice or something like that as an acute injury protocol. I would yeah. promote it if there's pain and if there's gross swelling or anything like that. You gotcha. Pens, right? The greatest yeah. two words ever invented. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it depends on context. I think it depends where you are, maybe what they're used to, and depending on how much awareness and education you can bring into the conversation as to mm-hmm. why you might use a modality or not. But um, yeah, you know, I, I worked somewhere and they were all ice, ice, ice. It's protocol. It's normal. It's part of the system. And you come up to a lot of uh, stickiness when you challenge it. So I, I think, you know, you, you fight your battles at that point in time if you're bringing in anti-inflams and stuff for like that as well, right? But I you can always lean on evidence in certain places too. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, if you got a blown up knee, that's ginormous, you probably want to put something on it to calm it down. But you know, I think it depends is a great, (laughs) is a great way to look at it because it depends on everything. Right. Exactly. Who's in front of you most important as well. But, but Eric, you said you're no longer an athlete, but uh, you were an Aggie. Yeah, you were a, a walk-on <laughs> Aggie, and uh, you said sports got you into the game, but curiosity launched your career. I mean, love that yeah. turn of phrase. Going to rob it from you. Um, mm-hmm. Just tell us a little bit about that 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 journey, maybe from Texas A and M into the the transition after that for you. Yeah, that's a great that's a great segue. Uh, I would go back and say I, I'm not an athlete anymore, but I think. You know, I'm 41. I do jujitsu. I do lift weights. So I guess yeah, there needs to be a new term. I don't like weekend warrior, <laughs> and I don't like I don't want to throw the word functional in there just to say <laughs> I'm functional. You know, but like 
uh, I don't also don't want to be like Eric's just sitting on his butt. So I, and I, the word active makes me feel really old, right? Like I'm doing wheelchair <laughs> exercise, you know, like, like seated exercises. Um, yeah. So I was a walk on, uh, Texas A&M at a time when we were ridiculously talented and, um, it was very easy to see the difference between me and the person that I was competing with. Right. Go, that guy went in the ninth, you know, ninth overall pick in the NFL draft or this person or that person. So I was looking for every advantage I could possibly get. Now this is the late nineties, early two thousands and our weight room. This was a, one of the first like really big weight rooms and it was connected to our physiology lab. So this was like pretty, this was like, pretty innovative stuff. And so I kind of got a peek into what was going on over there. I was a biomedical science major. I went, I thought I wanted to be a surgeon and I went to our head strength conditioning coach and I said, Hey, what's going on over there? He's like, you know, there's a real science to training athletes and they were doing early heart rate studies, all sorts of really cool things. So I got interested. I got bitten by the bug. And I think I annoyed my strength conditioning staff so much because I was always asking why, how, uh, you know, but it was great. Mike Clark, who is our strength coach, ended up being in the NFL for a long time. He's kind of a legend in America. He is one of the kindest, most compassionate human beings and really had a big impact on me. And so I went to uh, the University of Arkansas after A&M as a graduate assistant strength coach. And I was very fortunate. Um, one day this coach track coach walks in and he's like, Hey, would you like to work with this athlete? And it was Veronica Campbell Brown. She's a eight time Olympic medalist. She'd just come off the Athens games. I'm like, yes, I'll work with Veronica <laughs> and, uh, her husband, Omar. And, uh, that turned into almost 14 years of working in pro track and field. And I got a chance to travel the world with her. Uh, I got to be a part of some Olympic gold medal efforts and train some other Jamaican uh, sprinters. And, um, I got the opportunity to travel the world and see how other people were training and developing athletes. And actually I met Dan path at, uh, uh, track and field. It was a uh, world indoors in Istanbul. And, uh, it was a very brief introduction. I didn't know who this guy was. I just noticed the intensity that he was watching his athletes. And it was very interesting because I would just kind of observe things. And, um, Later on, I, I developed a relationship with Dan, and I would consider him a friend today. But um, that really opened my eyes, and um, I thought, you know what? I'd heard about this thing called high performance. I'd heard about emerging field of sports science. And I was like, I want to try to bring this comprehensive thought process to American sport, and that, that was kind of an ambitious goal. Um, but fast forward to 2010. I was hired by a uh, new head football coach, Jimbo Fisher at Florida state. Now Florida state was an iconic football program. They're not on top right now, but for a couple decades, they were one of the best. And uh, coach Fisher was hired to replace hall of fame football coach, Bobby Bowden, who'd won a couple national titles, et cetera. So the expectations were pretty ridiculous. I was hired as the speed and nutrition coordinator of Funny enough, after the season, first season, I was promoted to director of football operations, which is basically like you're the general manager, and this is a $300 million organization. It was such a conflicting decision because I was being put in a position of senior leadership. I had no experience on the job. As a matter of fact, I found out later, some of the coaches told me they thought I would fail mm -hmm. um, because they just had no experience. 
but I, I told coach Fisher, if you, I'll do it. If you also name me director of sports science, he's like, yeah, you can call yourself whatever you want. He did. I mean, that did, that role didn't even exist. So on my vacation, I was asked by the GWS giants. I don't know if you guys know greater Western Sydney is, but, um, they were starting, the team was just getting started. They were an expansion team and the general manager and the high performance director, John Quinn invited me and a friend to Australia for a month as an information exchange, because what they wanted to do was, um, they were going to get the equivalent of like 20 or 30 first round draft picks, but these guys were young. They were like babies. They weren't going to be any good for five, six years until they matured into full grown men because of, um, free agency, they didn't want to lose them. So they're like, could you come over and help us create like a college type of environment? And then we'll teach you about sports science. So it was a true like partnership for a month. And, um, we came back and I convinced coach Fisher to let us start tracking our athletes in games. I literally brought the first 12 catapult units from Australia to the U S like the company had no footprint um, we had no playbook. I was duct taping the devices to the pads and, uh, long story short, you'll find this funny after the first week coach comes to me, he's like, all right, how are we going to use this data? And I'm like, I don't know yet. And he was not really excited about that. <laughs> so, um, I ended up hiring a NASA, a former propulsion engineer from NASA. Cause the, the, the UI user experience was terrible. It was just raw data. Right. At that point. So he helped me organize it. I'm like, this is what I want. You organize the data and give me what I want. And after that first season, we were able to say like, okay, I had a hunch that we were overtraining our athletes and that the specificity of what we were doing was not on par with the specific demands of the game, but nobody had ever quantified it before. We, we were able to say like, hey, we're playing like three to almost four games before we get to Saturday. So during the training week, we were, we were practicing a ton. Number two, there was zero periodization to anything we were doing. It was basically just in the off season. It was like every day or in the preseason, every day was the same. And so the monotony acute to chronic did not exist at this point. It was just very easy to see like, this is bad. Um, and then everybody was training exactly the same in the off season. So a lineman we found could may sprint, you know, 50 yards in an entire game. And that was usually from the sideline to the field to get onto the field and a skill player would sprint uh, upwards of 2000 high speed yards. If they're playing core four special teams. So they cover like six to 7,000 yards. So we ended up kind of flipping the script, training people differently. Coach Fisher uh, allowed us to uh, apply a little bit of periodization. And then the, the way that we manage the player health and season was phenomenal. And that was a lot of the credits goes to him for being innovative. And the next year we had an 88% reduction in injury. Uh, the NFL flew in and was like, what's going on here? We've heard about this. And it literally proliferate, like the NFL ended up adopting technology. This technology went everywhere. Catapult had me helping them set up all these different NFL teams. I wish I would ask for shares. Yeah. I was stupid at the time. I would be retired. Um, <laughs> so I was just wanted to help. Like, that's what I wanted to do. I was mission driven. Right. And, um, very thankful that really changed the trajectory of my career. And I got to be, a the first high performance director and football made a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes, um, had an opportunity to work in the NFL. And then that kind of led me to where I am right now, 
So you were faced with this new role one year in, you're after being offered this new role and you had that sort of dilemma of, okay, I've, I feel like I've got a personal lack of experience here in this, this opportunity. What gave you the courage to pursue it? And when it was, when it, you were going after it and maybe you felt like you might've been stepping outside your comfort zone, you may have been, maybe imposter syndrome had, a, had an effect. What did you do to make sure that you sort of built your self-efficacy, your self-confidence back up to make sure you are the right guy to lead this and then to have the bravery to go and innovate so much? Part of it was being young uh, and just like, I can do this. Um, the other thing was, I, here's what I did. So the, as far as the operations role, I sat back and I was like, okay, I, I had done so much organization for the coach the previous year on the road. I was, it was kind of like the slow bleed where as the season was going on, I was like, something's going on here. So I was like helping with travel with all these different things. So I started upskilling myself, but then when it came down to execution, I did call some people at some major universities and was like, Hey, I got this new role. You've been doing this for 30 years. Can you help me? And there was some people that sent me like everything like travel manifestos, like everything that they would do to organize. But then I was like, I was low on the totem pole. And when you're low on the totem pole, nobody hides anything from you. Cause they're like, ah, forget that guy. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so you saw all the inefficiencies. So what I did was, is now all of a sudden I'm over these people as I went to them and I was like, look, here are the things that I see as issues. What problems do you have? And what resources do you need to get them done to get it fixed? So I will do, here's my deal. I'm going to give you whatever you need to fix the problems that we have. And then if it doesn't get fixed, then, you know, there's no excuse. Does that make sense? And they appreciated that. It wasn't like, I'm going to come put my thumb down on you. It was like, here are the things I see could be fixed. Here's where I think things can be better. But what do you, what do you know, where are you struggling? Is it staff? Is it money? Is it resources? One of those folks, um, he and I still have a great relationship to this day because I just, I just basically try to put myself in his, his shoes, you know, like just give me what I need. And I think if you can get the job done, then you'll get the job done. I still made a lot of mistakes, you know, like understanding how to, deal with uh, a new head coach in season, the pressures that come with that, you know, I did the best I could, you know, and then as far as like, I just, I leaned on my faith a lot, knowing that I was in a situation that, you know, I wasn't going to be there and fail. I, I just tried to do whatever I could to help the team win, you know, like, and even if it was unpopular at the time, like sometimes you got to be a little unpopular if you're going to get, if you're going to do something new, you know, I put my neck out there and it's really kind of funny. My entire career, I've always been swimming upstream and uh, doing things even earlier job before that I would have people on staff. Cause I spent a lot of time. I was young. I was spending a lot of time in my office between training sessions, just studying and reading and learning and trying new things. And people I worked with didn't like that. Like, you're not a part of the team. You don't hang out with us in the office and BS and you don't go do, you know, the staff workouts. I'm like, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to train athletes and get better. And look, I'm not saying I'm this great person or great coach or anything, but the best are the best for a reason. You got to put in the work. 
And, um, you know, I look at Elon Musk with SpaceX, you know, uh, you know, President Obama privatized space industry. And uh, there was a, I don't know if you guys remember this, it was a massive backlash in like the, 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 uh, you know, NASA and then Neil Armstrong, who was one of Elon Musk's heroes came out and said like, this is a terrible idea. This is going to fail. You're going to hurt people that crushed him. I think there's a 60 minutes interview where he's like crying. Um, but that didn't stop him, you know, and, uh, people thought he was crazy. Well, doggone it. Now they've made it so cheap. We're going to be able to go mine things on asteroids in the moon because the <laughs> payload's gotten so cheap. And he's like, you know, he's helping the world. Uh, and so, you know, I, I can look back retrospectively and, and part of it, you just got to put your head down. And if you believe it, you got to come up with a great plan and just go execute. Back in the day when this pod started, we had a fellow called Jay Cutcherson who came on and it stuck with me to this day. He was a, he was, he was a man that would go up and save people that suffered in avalanches, right? In Colorado, crazy guy. Um, and he talked about for him, the most important attribute to have in those environments was to be the limber pine to be able to adapt to changing circumstances, to be pliable, to be able to move with the changing of the weather and all that. Adaptability is kind of jumping out to me, Eric, because you, you've had lots of different transitions in your career and you know we're not even on your, your app. We're not even on that part yet of your journey, but what is it about maybe adaptability that seems to be something that's helped you, helped you be successful? Wow, that's a really great question because AIM-7 is solely developed on the concept of adaptability. Actually, our A7 score is an adaptability score. That's what it stands for. You know, something I was always fascinated about, the best athletes in the world adapt the fastest. It's just what it is. Um, and if you measure biological states of readiness, you train them and they come back the next day and they look like they did nothing. Uh, like some athletes I've worked with, like Bud Dupree or Veronica Campbell Brown, like it would take an intense stimulus for a very long period of time for them to start seeing degradations. So I got fascinated by like, how do you make somebody more adaptable? I guess in my personal life, I've always, you know, adaptability is the formula is stress, the right dose of stress and the right dose of rest. Um, sometimes you're forced to adapt. And if you don't, you're getting going to get squeezed out. I've always been comfortable with risk. I've always felt, I don't know what it is. I just, I it's, you know, my wife isn't that way, <laughs> you know, other people I know aren't that way. My parents really instilled in me this idea that if you have a talent or skill or ability, you should put in your maximal effort for the benefit of others. And it was really like, I would almost say like a sin not to max out your capability you ever seen an athlete that has so much potential and they do nothing with it? Like there's, there's something wrong with that. Somebody with a great capacity to do great art and they just squander it. You always think about, well, what if, well, I don't want to be that person at the end of my life is like, well, what if this, that, or the, or the other, it used to be chasing trophies, you know, or helping teams win or helping athletes reach their potential. And now I have a bit bigger of a mission of helping people live healthier and more impactful lives. But it's funny. It all comes down to adaptability. It's so crazy that you brought that up. Serendipity. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've got thriving 
in your in your mission statement there on yeah. your website, which kind of is another big powerful word. But talk to us a little bit about your app and kind of what you're trying to do, and you know, bring in the performance and sports science and curiosity and all these learnings you've had. What's what's it about? What's AIM Seven all about? Yeah, I think you guys will will connect with this. You know, at least in America, like a third of Americans right now are wearing wearable devices. Um, I think 77 million Americans own them across the globe. This is a booming industry. I think it's a $116 billion industry. I grew 24% in the past year in 2021. But you have to think about why do people buy these devices? They want to change their behavior. They want to sleep more and exercise more. They want to have less stress. They basically just want to feel better. But wearables don't change behavior. You just measure it. These devices show you data, but they don't tell you how to use the data precisely so that you can look, feel, and perform your best. And so um, there was actually a paper in the Frontiers of Physiology that came out in November that demonstrated this with the device you just showed me. <laughs> the devices alone do a poor job of changing health outcomes. We all know that from our careers in sport. Um, the, the catapult technology is great, but if we never applied it, nothing would have changed. These devices right now don't fulfill that. So what we're doing is, is we're taking the next step is we are providing, we are, AIM7 is a platform that unlocks wearable and mobile health data to provide customized and predictive solutions. So back in 2019, I got really curious about this. I'm like, I wonder if consumers have the same problem we had in the early days with these devices. The overwhelming response is yes started doing research and asking people surveys to people across the country. And it was like, what is it that you want from your wearable? Number one response we got was more energy. This device could give me more energy, help me feel better. So ran a pilot in 2019 and we used data from the Apple watch and some other very unique data sets. And we were able to predict people's energy and mood states multiple days in advance. Oh. And we could identify actions people would need to take to consistently perform at their best. So they have minimal perturbations from optimal. And we had that model externally validated by computer science researchers at NC State University. And so um, that's really what got AIM7 started. And uh, so what we're delivering right now is we have five pillars for building adaptability. Okay. Exercise, sleep, nutrition, psychological flexibility, and fostering and developing healthy relationships. Those five things, the literature is very clear, improve adaptability and will help, can help mitigate, or even the CDC says cut in half the most common preventable disease states in the United States, which count for over $4 trillion in annual spending, cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes. So this is a global problem that we're looking at. But in order to make this actionable, you actually have to give people recommendations. You actually have to tell them how to use it for them. So where we're starting is, is with exercise. So Dr. Chris Morris, who's on our team, uh, he's did some of the foundational research and fluid periodization. Right now, we, we solve the problem between wearables and exercise content. So we provide people the precise dose of exercise that they can adapt to each day based off of what we call the A7 score. It's your cap capacity to adapt to psychophysiological stress. So for instance, if we were end to end integrated with the Apple watch right now, 
if you were to, let's say, track cycling, right? You go into AIM7, you click get my recommendations, you go to cycling, because anything you track on there, you get a recommendation for, and it would tell you the exact heart rate zone and the exact duration you can go that day. Nothing like that's available on the market that I know. You do weightlifting, we don't create the content, we make whatever you do 10 times better. Because research demonstrates that if you use a fluid model for training, we know this, significantly outperforms static plans, even static periodized plans. And so um, we built out this capability, but then we pick up where wearables fail. You see, wearables can't tell you exactly what you need to change regarding your health because they don't even measure how you feel. And then they show you your problem, but they don't tell you how to fix it. Like, all right, I'm seeing I sleep five hours a night on my aura ring. Gee, thanks. Okay, what do I do with that? We, after 21 days, analyze your data, and then we identify what we call your limiting factor. And it could be a number of things. And then we send you this report and then we unlock world-class content and features to teach you how to fix it. So like the senior sports psychologist for the U.S. Olympics, Dr. Peter Haberl developed all of our psychological flexibility training. I did all the sleep stuff. It's amazing. We almost have a year of content in there and it's impacting people's lives on a profound level. We've had people that have been able to sleep through the night, getting seven to eight hours of sleep. People are losing weight. Uh, we had one lady who's a mental health professional started giving her clients our mm -hmm. recommendations and she was able to uh, objectively measure changes in mental affect. I mean, like amazing stuff. So we're going to be that technology that can suck in any wearable, any medical health data, whatever. And we'll be able to tell you exactly what to do so you can look, feel and perform your best. But it all goes back to adaptability. The first thing we teach people is like, look, you can't manage stress. Like life's going to come. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. Relationships, work, the economy, COVID, like you can't plan this stuff. What you can do is build the capacity to adapt to more stress. So it costs you less physically and mentally. So we picture it as like a bowl. If I had a bowl that like sits in my hands and I filled it to the brim with all the stress that I can handle and I try to walk across the room, what's going to happen? It's going like to spill out, and, you know, but now let's imagine I develop, I have a huge bowl that I, fills up both arms and I fill it to the same level of stress. Well, I could probably run down the street. Nothing's going to happen. I could do the Jack Sparrow run. Right. <laughs> and so like, that's what we're teaching people how to do. But to build adaptive capacity, you have to present the body with the right dose of stress at the right time. So exercise is where we're starting, but then we build these capabilities in other domains. It's huge because we see that data to action piece. And it's, as you said, experience with the likes of Catapult, getting all this information. What is their data analysis going on? Are we using it? When we're looking at them pillars you mentioned, we would know about sleep, exercise, but psychological flexibility is something that people may not be too aware of. We know a little bit, but we'd love to learn a bit more. What does that entail yeah. in itself? Yeah, I actually just wrote an article today that got published in Inc. Magazine, if you want to take a little bit deeper dive on it. Psychological flexibility is simply being aware of the present moment and being open to uncomfortable feelings and then being able to take committed actions based on your values. What we're training people to do, like Dr. Haberl has been, the first time I ever heard Peter speak 
was at a high performance summit at the USOC a number of years ago. They had like 60 or 80 of the top performance directors in the world, like the all blacks were there, you name it. It was like when he spoke, you could have heard a pin drop. And I went to him, I was like, I'm going to hire you one day. And he was like, he's, he's this Austrian guy. He played, he was on the Austrian national hockey team and he just laughed. Uh, we, be, we became friends and I just started learning from him. One of the things he says is athletes come to him and they say, can you help me with confidence? And he says, no, I don't want to. And they're like, well, why? And he's like, because confidence is a, like an emotion or a feeling. And what are you going to do when doubt creeps in? And so there's this myth that the best in the world don't have negative thoughts, feelings, and emotions. No, what they do is, is they're able to recognize that they feel this way. And then they're able to shift their attention to the present moment to take action. So we teach people, we have a unique behavior design process that we teach them in the first couple of weeks on how to do this so that they can take a behavior and turn it into a habit. Because what happens when you don't feel like doing the thing? You have to anchor your action on what you value most. And so that's psychological flexibility. Um, and uh, it's unique. You know, mindfulness is part of this, but mindfulness isn't really what mindfulness is training present moment awareness. And it's not sitting with your legs crossed and floating above the floor. It's, you know, it's truly training your mind to be aware of the present moment and to be open to how I'm feeling. If, it's, if I'm nervous, if I'm excited, if uh, I'm agitated, and then being able to go, okay, like, I don't know, do you guys, are you guys married or have kids? Married with kids. To be married. Yeah. My man, like, <laughs> sometimes you make, you, you do and say things, you're like, crud, I wish I hadn't acted that way. Your kids can like push buttons. Well, what if you were able to be aware that I'm getting agitated and frustrated, and then you were able to take an action or communicate with your child based off of how you, what you value. I value my family. I value my relationships. So I'm going to respond in this way instead of just like, ah, you know, freaking out. That's, that's a critical skill to be developed. You were always reading in those changing room scenarios. Yeah, you, you found the moments you didn't go training in the gym with, with the rest in the department. And now you're, I would train myself. You're building this and, and yeah. we've looked at it and obviously you've got this community and this app and it's, it's going places, but what about learning and self de self development and growth for you when you're, we're curious, here's a guy who's doing all this, building all this, collaborating, trying to find more partners, putting his business out there. Where do you find the time in your week? What does that look like to keep investing in your own learning? Because that's obviously very important to you. Uh, podcasts, eBooks and books all the time. Uh, so I'm reading a book called build by Tony Fidel, you know, never split the difference is another book. I've read so many Chris books Voss. this year. Um, yeah, Chris Voss, great book. I have a podcast called the blueprint. Okay. And, um, I started it, you know, it was really interesting early before the pandemic. I, I was toying with this idea of, you know, 2019 I'm toying with this idea of aim seven. So I wanted to learn about marketing. So I started reading all these books on marketing, started learning about this guy from this guy, Russell Brunson anyways. And he says, Hey, you should, before you build a product, you should build an audience. 
And, you know, I'd never really touched social media. I had 2000 followers on Instagram and I didn't even know it. I think I posted twice. Uh, <laughs> so I started posting stuff during the pandemic. And then I was like, you know what, before aim seven, I want to build an audience and serve them. And then when the product's ready, I want to be able to offer it to them, but I want to build this no like, and trust factor. I'm going to get to this education piece here in just a second. So <laughs> I started doing the podcast. And it started as just a once a week thing. And so in preparation for that, I would bring on high performers that I wanted to learn from. And so I'm in the process that you have to prepare. I was reading so many books, like speed reading books, crazy. Um, and then we started, we kind of settled into very short episodes, 15 minute episodes, really high hitting. Cause we found the people that we're serving are really time poor, but in the preparation process for that, I have to really do a lot of reading and research so that I'm prepared, just like you guys do. That's one of the ways that I learn. I think about something that would benefit our audience and that I would also be curious in. And then here I am now, like, I have to understand about building a business model, about how to market, about, you know, the CEO early on has a lot of hats. I got to go hire people that are designers. And so I've read product management books. I'm, you know, it's, I'm not so much into, I'm reading more scientific literature that's a little bit broader in nature, but it's not as much focused on the sports stuff anymore. And I have Dr. Morris, Chris Morris is our chief scientific officer, and it's his job to be in the weeds on that stuff. Because eventually I'm going to have to step back to run a company, really run. If we're going to make the impact that we want to make, uh, and because our mission is to help people live healthier and more impactful lives, we want to impact tens of millions of people. So I can't be in the weeds all the time. I have to be, have, I have to be more of a visionary, tell the story of the company, hire great people and put them in a position to be successful. So I'm the head coach now. So the, the type of learning I'm doing is shifted. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to do this too, is like, quite honestly, you know, I had the latter part of my career was a little bit disappointing, got fired from a job that, you know, I did everything right. And I say that because that all my performance reviews are great. My, the guy that hired me was a general manager. He stepped down to take care of his wife who had cancer. And then the new head coach, the head coach currently just kind of just fired everybody that was under him. You know how this stuff goes. And it was just disappointing. And I'm like, I no longer want to be in a situation where I could do everything right, serve people. Granted, you're going to make mistakes, but, and my, the outcome of the, of the, of the game, I don't have any, like I'm, the, what I'm doing really doesn't factor because I could be gone tomorrow. And then I had a coach say once, like in sports, put your hand in a bucket of water and pull your hand out. And that's how much people are going to miss you when you're gone. It's literally like that. And I don't want to say miss you, but like your work is eradicated overnight. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm sick and tired of being under some irrational head coach that maybe or may not be qualified to even do their job. I'm going to go find a way that I can serve people to the highest level. And if this thing fails, it's either because the market rejected it. We were too early or I screwed it up and this may fail. Uh, I hope it doesn't. We're having, we have great traction so far. We've have some amazing stories that are coming out of this, but I was like, it was just, I felt that was the next thing that was in line for me. Sounds like you're creating true impact with it. So hopefully we'll see it continue to rise and achieve with it. Just going back to 
your time when you said you spent reading and you're talking about reading scientific literature, what may be perceived from what we've talked about is that you didn't harness and focus on the relationships by going out with them teams, but we know it to be very different because we look at soft skills and human skills to be so vital for people, especially sports science, physiotherapists, that sort of healthcare trained or uh, sports medicine trained. There's clinical approach and real focus on that in academia, but yet what really builds a career and helps people integrate and become a better team is the ability to connect, to build relationships, to go up to the speaker after a conference and say, I'm going to hire you. How important do you think them skills are for what you have achieved in your career and what's ahead of you? It is really important to get along with other people. It's really important to connect with others. I was a, like a, you know, lower on the totem pole strength coach. And I knew I had a massive knowledge gap to overcome early on. That's how it is. You know, you have so much to learn really fast. And so I was focused on that part. The relationship with the athletes were really good down the line. You know, I, I've learned that sometimes like you can't, you got to be zealous, but being overzealous can turn people off. And so there's, there's, um, there's some things I wish I'd go back and do differently. Of course, but it's really important that you can connect and relate with others. I also say, if you're in a position of leadership, most of the time in sports, you're going to have to get the right people underneath you. I have found it very rare is that that many people that you come and inherit are going to be the people that are going to be able to get the job done. A few. And you should give those people a chance, but expect about 90% turnover. And that's okay. I was really uncomfortable with that at the beginning because people were leaving. I took it personally and I should have looked at it as like, no, this is a wonderful opportunity to build a great team in sports. It's such a bizarre environment because there's a lot of ego, the higher up you go, the more money is involved and people are trying to cut each other's legs out from underneath them. I think it's really important that you have a, a key set of core values and principles that you do not um, budge on, you know, if you want to be a person of character, then you act like a person of character. You don't try to cut people's legs out from underneath you and bad things are going to happen to you, but that's okay. Cause at the end of the day, you will always have your character. And I've been in situations where people have done me wrong and called me two years later. And like, I'm sorry for what I did. I'm just not going to compromise on that. So I think it's really important that you can connect with people. You guys know who Kier is rugby yes, strength coach, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He put out a tweet and somebody said, who's the hardest person you've ever worked for? And he wrote Eric Corum by far, but he flogged himself more than anybody else. And so, you know, basically what he was saying is, is like, I, I held people to a ridiculously high standard, but I held myself to that same standard. And, and the organization we're in right now is we're, we're set getting ready to scale and actually start hiring a lot more people. It's very, very small right now. But there is a standard of excellence we are not going to compromise on. The bar, the bar is where the bar is. And if you can't uh, hang, then you just won't be here. But you can treat people really, really well, you know, um, and still have a high standard of excellence. And you can still uh, not overwork people. But when you're working, you would better do your job at a very, very high level. That's the only way you're going to be successful. Steve Jobs, um, you know, you should read this book by Tony Fidel called Build. I think every coach should read it. It'll, it should, it really will change your mindset on a few things. Part of my language, but he, he has a whole chapter on what he called on assholes. Uh-huh. 
And he said, there's, and he, and, and some of these I'm like reading and he's that word is repeated so many times. I'm like, dear goodness. But, um, he talks about all these different types of assholes and most of them are negative, but then there's the mission driven one. And that person is going to hold you to a really high standard because the mission is what the mission is. They're not going to attack you personally, but they will call out your work. That's the, those are the people that are elite. They don't personally insult you. If you don't do a great job, they also champion you when you do, but they, the work is what the work is. Um, and it doesn't matter what profession you're in. You're a, you're a soldier, you're a business person, you're a teacher, uh, you split wood for a living. Like if you want to be great, there's only one way to do things. My opinion. That's lovely. Yeah. That's a lovely way to bring us into our last question, Eric. You're not a weekend warrior. What are you? Not that one. That's what we're going to, that's the next version. Okay. We're, we're functional athletes. That's what I am. I'm a dad of two. I'm a functional athlete. No longer playing basketball. Joking aside, Eric, bring all the stuff that we've learned from you and what's going on. What does high performance mean to you? Yeah. It's your ability to perform at your optimal with minimal perturbations. So performance looks different for any, for if you're a, um, if you're a truck driver doing long haul truck like across the country, your performance for you is being able to stay cognitively aware and navigate the roads without hurting anybody. Right. If you're a, a wall street analyst or a broker, your ability to make decisions really fast with accuracy. If, um, I mean, you should go down the list. If you're a teacher, it's to be able to take information and translate it in a way that captures people's attention and meets them where they are. Perform High performance is being able to do whatever you're supposed to do within a bandwidth of with minimal perturbations, consistently sustain potential, your potential. Um, we used to say we wanted to build the most resilient and adaptable athletes to consistently obtain their performance potential. That's what high performance is to me. To do that, you have to build adaptive capacity. You build adaptive capacity, then you can continue to push and push and push with minimal perturbations from your best. Make sure to check out AIM-7 as well. Dr. Eric yeah, Farm. please do so. Thanks very much for joining us, man. Best of luck with all that stuff. We're looking forward to seeing where it goes and um, keep, spreading, keep spreading the mission, keep spreading the good vibes. Thanks a lot for Thank your time. Thank you, guys. Thank you for Thanks, having sir. me on. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.